and welcome back to the Indie the Podcast from the newsroom of the Santa Barbara Independent. I'm Molly McEnany, the host of The Indie, and I'm here with Nick Welsh, reporter for The Independent, to talk about the 2021 mayoral election. Current Mayor Kathy Murillo is up against five candidates, and on the SB City Council, two seats are also up for grabs. Hi, Nick. Could you first off tell me a bit about the campaign trail this year? Is there anything new and noteworthy or controversial? Actually, there are three uh, seats. Uh, one of them is uncontested. Then you have two contested council races. And then you have the mayor's race, which is a very big deal. I think that after the four years that we've had, which have been to hell and not quite back yet, when Kathy Maria was sworn in as the city's first Latina mayor ever in the history of forever, four years ago, on the very day she was sworn in was the day of the uh, debris flow uh, that killed 23, 24 people in the wake of the Thomas fire, which itself was hellacious and then some. And uh, since then, you know, obviously we've had all kinds of sort of political upheaval. And then we had, you know, fires, floods, drought, and then of course, COVID, COVID, COVID all the time. And so I think anybody in that sort of predicament who was the mayor at that time they better walk on water or they, they may drown. And I think Kathy Murillo has not really availed herself to the bully pulpit in a way that people may need in times of crisis. So I think that has not helped her. And I think that the uh, district elections that we now work under here for the first time in Santa Barbara uh, in many, many years, we have an all district council. And you have so all these people who are you know, doing the dance of district elections um, for the first time would be hard enough and awkward enough that anybody would look like two left feet. But when you have district elections in the time of COVID, when you can't really meet with your fellow council members in person, then they can become abstractions that annoy the crap out of you. That's a problem. And that the uh, relations between the council members themselves and with the mayor have not been uh, idyllic. And, you know, Kathy has been uh, taken to task by her opponents who are claiming, oh, she is not a good leader. And that, of course, is an ephemeral sort of saying, oh my God, leadership, 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 what does that even mean? And Kathy will tell you, look, we got a lot done uh, for such a allegedly dysfunctional council. And she's got some points. Whether you like what she did or not is another thing. But, you know, the uh, council under her watch did just pass a community choice initiative, which uh, will allow the city of San Barbara to go out and broker so-called green electricity and have it sent through the wires that so- SoCal Edison provides so that uh, we can reduce our carbon footprint reportedly uh, by something like 20%. So that's not insignificant. Certainly nobody works harder on the campaign trail, knocking on doors, shaking hands, working a room, and asking for money. There is a whole other side of the community that when they see Kathy, they see red. They're the seizing impatience that she elicits in a lot of people. They do, it's the ABC brigade, anybody but Kathy. Well, that's a perfect segue into what are the points of contention for the other five candidates? 
I'll start with Randy Rouse first because Randy is a former council member, served nine years on the council. And by any reckoning, he is the most formidable adversary that Kathy has off the bat. He's raised a lot more money than she does. The Democratic Party, he claims, has had undue sway. The unions have had undue sway. And uh, outside political interests have had undue sway. And what he's going to do is return Santa Barbara politics to Santa Barbara. He's a moderate, moderate, moderate. He's not an activist uh, by any means. Uh, James Joyce is, uh, you know, he has been eight, eight years, nine years for Hannah Beth Jackson, uh, our former state senator, and she is a high-octane uh, human being and a high-octane political representative, and anybody who could last that long with her has got some serious staying power. James has a lot more than that. He's got a lot more than a catchy name, and he has a lot more than the fact that he's an African-American, the first African-American in Santa Barbara to run for mayor. And certainly if elected, he would be the first to be elected. You know, he really does understand in a visceral way how the Rubik's Cube of government works in terms of how local, state, and federal government agencies should interact during um, times of crisis, especially. Uh, and so he's all about you know, having a conversation about building community and food at the table. You know, he asks questions like, hey, how come... The city of Santa Barbara doesn't have a mandated vaccine already. Or isn't it time we had some sort of campaign finance reform at the city level? Because there's way too much big dollar donations coming in uh, for anybody's comfort level. And then Deborah Schwartz, you know, Deborah Schwartz, 12 years on the planning commission. Her mother was Naomi Schwartz, who is the second coming of Pearl Chase for a whole lot of people. The true, you know, pioneer of the local environmental establishment. And Deborah has the unenviable task of being the apple that fell from Naomi's tree. And she sort of has a reputation of being the smartest person in the room. She is obviously extremely well-versed in the minutia of planning. Initially, she was the favorite of the property owners, the business people, the architects. She's all about housing, 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 and how, you know, there's no leadership, there's no planning, and we need to reform the red tape and the bureaucracy. After that, we get into Mark Whitehurst, who is, oh Lord, 14 years, I believe, on the downtown organization board. He runs a newspaper uh, in town called um, The Voice. And then, of course, at the very end, we have a guy named Matt Kilrain, who is as close to we get here, I think, as a uh, QAnon. I don't know that that is uh, fair, but he believes that the... Uh, Child abuse is uh, not just allowed here, but uh, encouraged. And uh, he believes that you know, City Hall is a tyrannical, oppressive force. He has a lot of catchy lines about staying alive and bringing back the 805. The question is, can anybody beat Kathy Murillo? And according to polls, according to my intuition, it's possible. You know, this whole business about abortion and abortion rights in the state of Texas and what's going on with the Supreme Court uh, could actually have a big influence or a significant influence, I should say, that the people in town who are most inclined to be upset by what's happening with the parent repeal or imminent repeal of Roe v. Wade, they are going to, uh, I think, fall you know, within the Democratic Party line, and the Democratic Party line is for Kathy. 
Well, and I think it'll be a really tough battle in general for Kathy with five candidates who some have raised more money than her. They're running on a more moderate platform. They're trying to gain votes from both sides. So it should be a very interesting race. But thank you so much, Nick, for speaking with me about it. All right. Hey, you take care. Thank you very much. Be sure to vote. In other news, abalone, a marine snail or mollusk that is pretty common along the Santa Barbara coast, is at critically low population levels because of overexploitation and disease. Ever since abalone fishing has been illegal since 1997, there have been lots of opinions about what to do regarding the preservation of the species and the impact that this has had on local fisheries. I'm here with Matt Ketman, senior editor at The Independent, to talk about the story. Thanks for being here, Matt. Thanks for having me, Molly. So there's a Fish and Game Commission meeting this coming October 14th to discuss donating funding to studies seeking to research abalone in the region. Going into the story, what's the situation from the fishing perspective? So the abalone industry used to be a huge thing in Santa Barbara County and all up and down the coast of California. You know, it was like a very common food for Californians. Then things started to dwindle a little bit by the 80s and 90s. And, and part of that was from a lot of fishing, you know, as it happened. But a lot of it was from this withering foot disease, which is this, you know, disease that affects abalone and has been causing trouble for them uh, ever since. Uh, the fishermen now, most of whom are fairly old at this point, but some of them are still, you know, diving urchins out there at the islands. They're actually seeing a ton of abalone. In particular, the thing they're seeing is red abalone uh, right around San Miguel Island, off the Santa Barbara coast, uh, you know, the furthest west of the Channel Islands. They're seeing a lot of red abalone, and they're saying to the state, hey, you told us 20-whatever years ago that if we saw more abalone, you would reconsider opening this fishery. And so for the past two years, a few of these fishermen have done all of the required paperwork to get the Fish and Game Commission to reach the point of saying, okay, we will study it, or okay, we won't. And so that's the decision on October 14th. Basically, the state commission can say, hey, this sounds like a good idea. We should go find out what's going on out there. Let's study it and determine whether or not we should reopen the fishery. Or they could say, hey, evidence looks not great. Uh, we're super busy with all these other things. We have these other collapsing abalone populations in other parts of the state. We have other pressing issues. Uh, we're not going to look at this right now. So that's that's what's on the table for October 14th. And fishermen are you know really excited to see that it potentially could happen, uh, but we'll we'll have to see and, and see what the staff recommends and see what the commission decides. Based on that, what does the process look like to even begin the research that would go into this, researching a species that has been protected by a fishing or poaching ban for over 20 years? And what's the probability that the Fish and Game Commission even funds it? So about 15 years ago, uh, they actually did a similar series of studies. So 2006, 7, 8, around there, they actually tried to do this again. And so they sent down divers. Uh, they contracted with a third-party research group. And they also used fishermen. So fishermen were a big part of the research at that time. And what happened is they came back and basically said, okay, there are some abalone out there. Um, we agree with that, but the situation isn't all rosy. Um, there's some other issues going on. And, and they decided just that essentially that further studies were warranted. Um, and then there were these other collapsing populations of abalone and other, you know, water issues that the state just had to basically move on and start studying and addressing other issues. Uh, I mean, there's the whole white abalone situation all across Southern California, which they're basically marching towards extinction. So they're trying to like, reintroduce some of those um, you know, populations, but that doesn't look great. 
Um, there's a whole red abalone situation north of the San Francisco Bay where uh, actually recreational diving for abalone continued to be legal um, after 97. And everything was looking pretty good there until about 2015, 2016. They're like, oh my God, where's all the abalone going? Um, and they had to close that entire fishery in 2017. So they were actually in the middle of making like a fishery management plan. And then all of a sudden had to scrap that and make a fishery complete recovery plan. So there's a lot of stuff going in the ocean right now when it comes to climate change that the scientists don't even fully understand. So some of the folks I spoke to, you know, I even asked them like, this must be difficult to make long-term planning decisions when we don't even know what the hell's happening now. And they were like, yeah, it's a nightmare. You know, we can't even really predict what's going on. So that's why to me, when this first was brought to my attention by some of the fishermen, it sounded like a real pipe dream. Like, well, you know, there's so much uncertainty in the world right now when it comes, especially marine issues. Um, what are the, what's the actual likelihood of the state, you know, reopening this given that all else is going on. Um, and so I was surprised to hear when I talked to people from the state that they weren't so adamantly opposed out of the gates. They're actually like, well, you know, maybe we should look at it uh, and we can make a decision then because their job is to, you know, uh, the Fish and Game Commission is about fishing and, you know, developing, um, you know, stable populations of, of resources for humans to, to take and also to, to keep the environment as, as clean as possible as well. So, um, so it's on the table, it's possible. I mean, I, I have to assume personally that it's probably unlikely given all else. I mean, they may, they may commission the study, um, but uh, that would still probably take a year or two to get to a point where you, they'd say, okay, yes, the fish is there. I think it'd be kind of cool to see the fishery back and see some of these guys at least get, get some ability to go back out there and, and fish for this uh, species if, if they are in abundance. Um, but it just doesn't, given all else in the world right now, it just doesn't seem like super likely that this is going to be a priority for, for the state. But, but we'll see. Yeah. And even though abalone was popular back in the day, is there even a market for abalone anymore? Like if we begin fishing this species again and risk its extinction, is it going to be viable for these fisheries? I mean, so there is a market for abalone, and we know that because of places like the cultured abalone, which is an abalone farm on the Gaviota coast, just 10 minutes up the coast from Santa Barbara. They grow abalone, a lot of it. They sell it. It goes to, you know, gourmet restaurants. Uh, during COVID, it actually started going a lot to just direct, uh, direct consumers. Um, but yeah, you see abalone in fancy restaurants. Uh, I, I mean, it's never going to be the heyday of, you know, what it once was, I don't think, when there was canned abalone and, you know, all sorts of all sorts of abalone out there um but i think there's definitely some hunger for for wild abalone and uh i think they could do well some of them go for like a hundred a pop right now apparently which would be quite a bit of money you wouldn't have to sell that many to make it make it worthwhile so we'll see i, I would say yeah there's a market there for sure people are into um shellfish right now people are into all kind of different species of fish and and when when made right abalone is quite good it's not the easiest thing to cook i've tried to cook it before with kind of failure results but uh if you do it right you know you gotta hammer it make it nice and thin and then fry it up and it, it can be a pretty tasty tasty treat but you know back in the day it was like a cheap food it was like the to some extent almost like a poor person food that then kind of rose in prominence as it became more and more scarce i mean what a classic example of the supply and demand chain but is there anything else that you'd like to add about the story no, it'll be fun to see what happens and 
um, you know, you got to feel for some of these fishermen. They really want to be back out there on the water. And some of them are, you know, getting into their 70s now. And like, this is kind of their last chance to do so. But as one of the guys at the state explained to me, they don't manage fisheries for individual people. They manage fisheries for the longevity of the population. So we'll see how that goes. Definitely. Thanks for coming on the show again, Matt. Always nice to have you. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. As always, you can check out this week's issue on www.independent.com. Once again, I'm Molly McEnany, host of The Indie. Tune in next week for another episode.